Hello and welcome to this Tax and Fiduciary Podcast brought to you by Investec. I'm your host, Nozi Pushabalala. In these podcasts, our aim is to help you navigate the different processes and laws when moving to an international geography or if you hold assets in that geography. And so in this podcast, we're going to be focusing on Mauritius, but you can also listen to our podcast about the UK, US and Australia simply by clicking on the separate links on this page. Coming up in the conversation, we're going to be touching on considerations, implications and ways of acquiring residence. We're going to look at laws around buying property, cross-border investment, exchange control, tax, trusts and wills. We're going to touch on SA estate planning, considerations, deceased estate administration and probate. And we're also going to look at Mauritius economic development, and that is looking at the business and resident investment opportunities in play. Now, I'm quite grateful today that we've got two incredible guests joining us. I'm joined by Renee Fanzel. She is the joint head looking after tax and fiduciary for Investec. She brings into this conversation a wealth of experience as an international expert on tax and estate planning. And joining us from Tamarin in Mauritius is Gordon Stewart. He is uh, the managing director of the Akuro Mauritius office. He has overall responsibility for the Mauritian operations, in particular, the implementation of the strategy, the oversight of key client relationships, as well as driving business development initiatives into the African market. So Renee in Johannesburg and Gordon in Mauritius. Hello to you both. Thank you, Nozi. Hi, Gordon. It's also good to speak to you. Hello, Nozi and Renee, and, and thank you for inviting me to participate in this roundtable discussion. Absolutely. I'm going to kick off by coming to you, Renee, first. Why are we looking at the Mauritian market today? So, Nozi, firstly, I cannot think of any good excuses not to visit the island. Um, it's white, sandy beaches, cocktails, lower tax, and the list just goes on and on and on. But all jokes aside, Mauritius is quite an attractive location from a residency perspective. And our clients often invest into the residency program, mainly because they feel it's close by. And if they want, for example, to live between South Africa and Mauritius, I think the traveling is a bit more manageable. And I think the requirements that you must meet for residency is also quite competitive compared to other jurisdictions like Portugal, where the language must be learned. But obviously, there are various options, and each option has its own criteria that must be met. And clients should really understand what these are before making the investments. Mauritius is also very competitive from a cost perspective. If you want to set up offshore company infrastructures, it's quite a popular jurisdiction. And then lastly, um, clients often feel more comfortable knowing where Mauritius is on the map rather than the BBI, Channel Islands, or Helsinki. So, Renee, you're really challenging our geography here and putting us to the test, but it's good to know that we can point out Mauritius on the map. Maybe let me come to you, Gordon. I mean, let's go back to your story. How long have you lived in Mauritius and what exactly made you decide to move there? Yeah, I think, first of all, I mean, thank, thank you, Renee, for the very generous introduction. And you are correct. Mauritius does offer a lot to a lot of expats and especially South Africans. So, Maybe just as a little bit of background, so prior to my move to Mauritius in May 2016, I was the chief operating officer of a South African nationally based fiduciary services company. We provided South African fiduciary and tax advice. 
So the principal reason for my move was to actually grow my international fiduciary and estate planning knowledge. I consider myself very fortunate to the extent that, you know, most South Africans who leave South Africa to take up employment elsewhere tend to lose the ability to apply the essay knowledge that they have acquired. Whereas because I'm back in South Africa around probably around about seven times a year to see my clients, and this is obviously outside of COVID restrictions, I've not only been able to retain my South African fiduciary knowledge, uh, but to also add to it from an international perspective. Gordon, that's fantastic and such a beautiful way to get into this conversation. I'm also keen to hear from you What's it really like living in Mauritius? And I suppose one of the questions that is top of mind for our clients who are looking at the Mauritian market is, how would a South African go about acquiring residence? Well, so, I mean, I've got to say that that living in Mauritius is an absolute pleasure. And, and both my family and I have thoroughly enjoyed the almost five years that we have been here. I mean, the time has flown by so quickly. Mauritians are amazing. I can't emphasize that enough. They are very friendly and caring. And, and the quality of life is different to what we experienced in South Africa. You know, the climate is, is very much conducive to an outdoor lifestyle with a lot of time spent on the water or at the beach or cycling or hiking in the forests. That said, look, I've got to say living in Mauritius is very different to living in South Africa. And some people love it, whereas others can't wait for their time here to end. It's by no means a, a low-cost country. And food, you know, property rental, motor vehicles, they are very, very expensive. We are starting to get some more shops here, but the variety is not what can be found in South Africa. It's important for people wanting to move to Mauritius to understand that expats are treated differently to citizens. We pay higher school fees than citizens to use the same school, and we are restricted to purchasing property only in certain designated schemes, uh, which tend to be very expensive, especially when compared to an equivalent property outside of such scheme. From a medical perspective, there's a few good private hospitals and clinics, but a lot of expatriates also take out international medical insurance to give them the flexibility to get medical treatment outside of Mauritius. And then finally, there's a few good schools that cater to the expat community, as well as local campuses of international universities. But sports that most South Africans grew up with, like rugby and cricket, are not played at school. Lovely. It sounds like a very balanced contribution that you've given us, Gordon. So some clear perks, but also some realities about what it is like living in Mauritius. I do want to come to the question around this idea and often touted, I might even call it an assumption that Mauritius is a tax haven. And so before I get to Gordon sort of really unpacking how tax really works in Mauritius, Renee, I want to bring your voice in here. The first question to you is, you know, there's always the comparatively low personal tax rate, which is often touted as a big advantage to living in Mauritius. What are your thoughts on this, Renee? Is it true? And perhaps you might also comment on the assumptions of Mauritius being a tax haven and what are the underlying misconceptions there? 
Thank you, Nozi. I mean, like Gordon just said, it's quite expensive to live there. And I think often people will assume that tax haven means that there are no taxes to be paid when you make the decision to relocate to live there on a permanent basis. And I think besides the living expenses being very high, there are also taxes to be paid. Although the rates might be lower than they are in South Africa, there are still taxes to be paid. I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that a lot of people believe that if one places your money in a tax haven, that you get your assets out of the tax net. And that's unfortunately just not the case. And Mauritius is quite highly regulated and participates in the common reporting standards. And I think tax authorities are sharing information globally and there really is nowhere to hide. I think another misconception is that people think that if they buy the residency, i.e. the investment into property, that they are no longer a tax resident in South Africa. And again, that is just not the case. You need to understand that obtaining residency via program versus your tax residency status are two totally different things. And I think clients should really understand and unpack what tax residency means before they make such an investment. And so maybe let's then bring that back into the Mauritius perspective and reality, Gordon. How does taxation work in Mauritius, especially considering some of the recent changes? What is the lay of the land now? Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks, Nozi. Yeah, I, when you were talking about, you know, tax haven, I had a little bit of a smile on my face because I, I don't think we could classify Mauritius as a tax haven anymore. Uh, you know, historically, the personal tax rate in Mauritius meant that the, the high cost of living was fairly easily absorbed. Uh, and up until 2019, the personal tax rate was 15%, which I used to love raising in conversations with my South African friends. But in 2019, and perhaps the government heard me gloating, they introduced a new 5% solidarity levy in addition to the fixed 15% PAYE. And that solidarity levy was implemented subject to someone earning above three and a half million rupees, which is probably the equivalent of about one and a half million rand. Then in 2020, the government increased the solidarity levy from 5% to 25%. And then they also dropped the qualifying amount from three and a half million down to three million, which is only about 1.28 million rand. And then in addition to this, a new law requires that those of us who work in Mauritius are required to contribute 3% of our salary, which uncapped, to a government pension scheme. However, as, as expatriates don't qualify to benefit from this pension scheme, it is in essence just another tax. So therefore, the increase in personal taxes plus the high cost of living has affected the quality of life in Mauritius. And I think it has also gone a long way to remove the status as Mauritius being considered as a low tax jurisdiction. You know, on a positive note, though, so although personal taxes have increased, there are no capital gains tax, donations tax or estate duty tax. And then just to come back to what Renee has said, she's 100 percent correct. You know, countries tend to get classified as tax havens due to their non-reporting of tax information. And this is definitely not the case in Mauritius, as the country signed up to both FATCA and CRS reporting. So there is a free sharing of information. So clearly a free sharing of information. But what I'm hearing from the both of you is 
demystifying some of these assumptions and really giving us greater clarity around the variables that South Africans looking to go to Mauritius need to consider. And one of those, Gordon, must be the options available to expats to acquire the right to live and work in Mauritius. How does this work exactly? What are the options that are available? Yeah, Nozi, there's a couple of options that are available. So I think the first one, and probably the most well-known, is that they can acquire permanent residency by buying immovable property in one of the residential property schemes. These are the well-known schemes like the Property Development Scheme, which is the PDS, the uh, Real Estate Scheme, RES, the Integrated Resort Scheme, IRS, and the Smart City Schemes. In the 2020 Finance Act, so what came out last year, the minimum investment amount to qualify for permanent residency through buying property was dropped from $500,000 US dollars to $375,000 US dollars. You know, even at $500,000, it was almost impossible to find anything worthwhile. And then I just want to re-emphasize what Renee has said that by Acquiring property in Mauritius, it does not automatically make an individual a Mauritian taxpayer. So you'd still have to qualify under the the day's test, similar to what we have in South Africa. And it also does not guarantee a passport. I think if I had $1 for every time I got asked by people, if, if they buy property, do they get a passport? I would probably be retired right now. So that's kind of getting it from the the permanent residency from the property perspective. In the 2020 Finance Act, the Mauritian government did also try and make it easier for individuals to acquire residency in Mauritius by way of, you know, professionals. So there's the professional occupancy permit, and this is valid for a period of a maximum of three years. Then there's the investor occupancy permit which used to be valid for three years, but they've extended it to 10. There is the self-employed permit, which also used to be three years, which has been extended to 10. And then finally, the retirement residency permit, which is valid for 10 years. You know, So each one of these particular permits has its own qualifying criteria that need to be met before the permit is issued. So it's really good to know what the options are and, of course, to know that one has to go in a little bit more detail to understand that qualifying criteria. But I suppose, Renee, there must be some real considerations as well from a South African perspective before you hop onto that four-hour flight and head to Mauritius. What are the key considerations? Yeah, I think before you get on the plane to enjoy the cocktails and the great beaches, you need to consider the implications from a South African perspective. And clients often forget about this when they are planning to relocate to another country. So should you decide to permanently relocate to Mauritius and you are no longer regarded as an ordinarily resident in South Africa, then the consequences of ceasing to be a resident of South Africa, from a tax perspective at least, is that a person will be treated as having triggered a deemed disposal of your worldwide assets. So in essence, the cessation of residency triggers a so-called exit charge. That's what we always call it. It's an exit charge under Section 9H of the Act based on the market value of your worldwide assets held at that point, excluding a few assets like fixed property in South Africa held in your personal capacity, cash, 
uninvested share options, and so forth. So this effectively means a capital gain tax charge at a maximum effective rate of 18% would be effective. And we always tell clients it would be prudent to calculate the anticipated tax liability where you're planning to seize South African tax residency before you contemplate going overseas or before you get on that plane. Just to do the number crunching and just see what that number looks like before you get on the plane and you go to Mauritius. It's also important to note that whereas tax residency is based on the concept of being either ordinarily resident or under the physical presence test in South Africa, unless a treaty determines otherwise, exchange control residency is based on the concept of domiciled citizenship or permanent resident status in South Africa. And the two concepts, there's different processes to follow when you see tax residency versus formal immigration when you no longer want to be exchange control residents. So I think it's really important for clients to understand, like Gordon said, the moment that you obtain or you make an investment to obtain residency, you won't automatically cease to be tax resident in South Africa. And there's certain steps and processes that you have to follow from an SA perspective to make sure that you tick all the boxes. Nausea, if I can just add, I mean, I'm really glad that Renee raised that point because, you know, South Africa taxes according to either you, the ordinarily resident, or you have the physical presence test. And then there is also the exclusion that says, unless you are the exclusive resident of another country. Now, fortunately, there is a double taxation agreement between Mauritius and South Africa. So you can go in and have a look to see whether someone is, according to the defined criteria, would be considered to be an exclusive resident of the other country. Now, what happens is, and I've run through the periods of times where your permit is valid. What I have been informed by tax practitioners in South Africa is that If we're looking, for example, at the three-year professional permit, that three years might not be long enough for someone to be considered to be the exclusive tax resident of Mauritius. With the consequence, and, you know, we we saw the change in the laws where they took away the, what's it, Section 10102, which was the 183 days with the 60 days. That's now gone. So I think this is where anyone who's looking at coming across to Mauritius They mustn't just make the assumption that because they've now come to Mauritius that they are an exclusive tax resident here and that they would not be liable for tax back in South Africa. But again, this is where, you know, the advice from tax practitioners would give clarity. Yeah. So, Gordon, I completely agree. And I think the permanency of a person's exit from South Africa is really a crucial factor in making any determination in relation to tax or exchange control. I think you before you just hop on that plane, I think you you really need to think long and hard or you know about whether you can actually live in that country on a permanent basis. One of the things that you both touched on in the conversation has been about the option to acquire residential property and so Gordon, you you sell a really good game of Mauritius being a beautiful country. Renee started off this conversation taking a jab at you with the cocktails on the beach. So I'm buying into that imagery as well. So we know that Mauritius is a beautiful country. We know that a lot of South Africans actually do want to acquire residential property there. Is there anything that we should be aware of when one has set their mind on buying property in particular? 
Yeah, definitely, Nozzy. And I'm really glad that you asked the question. So I think let's just have a little dive into how Mauritius estate laws work. And Mauritius follows two principles, namely the law where the property is located applies to immovable property and the law of the last domicile of the deceased applies to movable property. So this means that for immovable property here, Mauritian laws will apply. And seeing as Mauritius is a forced airship jurisdiction, this will have consequences for South Africans, especially from a taxation perspective. And maybe Renee can dive into that when I'm finished here. So under Mauritian law, a portion of the estate is reserved for the children of the deceased. And this means that no testamentary provision may encroach upon this reserved portion. And the reserved portion is kind of determined as follows. So 50% of the estate, if the deceased leaves only one child, 66% of the estate, if the deceased has two children, and 75% of the estate, if the deceased leaves three or more children. So this reserved Reserved portion is then divided amongst the surviving children and the descendants of any predeceased child, i.e. so if a child dies before their parents. So very similar to what we have in SA. Now, the unreserved or available portion of the estate may be freely willed to any other person. But interestingly, and I've had some really grumpy clients over this, the surviving spouse is not a protected heir. And there is no requirement that he or she must benefit from that unreserved portion. But at least they do have some peace of mind that uh, the surviving spouse is entitled to a lifetime right of usufruct over the home here in Mauritius, plus together with any furniture. I think also what makes it a little bit more interesting is, is that it's come back to where we talked about where we've got two children or three children. Only one child will be given the permanent residency. And similarly, for example, if you held that property in a company and you bequeathed the shares to your children, multiple children, for example, not every single one of those children is going to get the permanent residency. But what the EDB or the Mauritius Economic Development Board will look at is if those individuals want to come up with their own contractual agreement. So let's say, for example, child A has the permanent residency for a period of five years, and then after that, it goes to child B and then child C. So, Gordon, as a matter of interest, if you were to buy the property in an offshore trust, let's say situated in Mauritius, would you still qualify for residency? And would you get around the forced airship rules if it's not um, if the property is not bought by you in your personal capacity? Uh, definitely, Renee. I mean, and that's pretty much my advice to every South African is is that if you are looking at buying property here in Mauritius to avoid that forced succession, don't buy it in your own name. Buy it in a trust. What will happen is is that the EDB will, even though the trust will be the registered owner of the property, the EDB will give one person, the permanent residency, and then they will issue dependency permits to everyone else, i.e. the spouse and the children. And I think, you know, where, where I talked of earlier on the consequences for South Africans, so these properties are not cheap. You're typically looking probably at about an initial fee of about 15 million rand. 
So let's say, for example, I've got two children and they are going to inherit 66% of that 15 million rand. So let's call it 10 million for argument's sake. Now, 10 million minus the three and a half million rand abatement, because remember, now going to someone else other than the spouse, that leaves you with a asset that has been, been bequeathed to someone other than the spouse equal to around six and a half million rand. And that six and a half million rand is then going to be subject to South African estate duty tax at either 20% or 25%, depending on obviously the value of the deceased's estate. And then in addition to that, you can also throw in the deemed capital gains tax on death because it's gone to someone else other than the surviving spouse. So, you know, to answer your question, I think it's imperative that South Africans who are looking at acquiring a holiday home or a house here in Mauritius, they've got to do it through a trust. Something that I think is really important for everyone to understand is that a trust can be established using the governing law of any country, even though it's administered from Mauritius. So as an example, at Acuro, we establish our trusts using Jersey law, but the day-to-day -day administration takes place from Mauritius. So for clients who may have trusts that are established using Guernsey or Jersey law, that's not going to preclude them from transferring the trusteeship to Mauritius. Yeah, so Gordon, that's quite interesting, especially given the fact that in other jurisdictions, you lose the residency right if you buy the property in the structure. So from a Mauritius perspective, that's a big benefit. If you can make use of a structure that will safeguard you against the capital gain tax in the state in South Africa, but you still get the benefit of obtaining the residency. So that's a great benefit to have. Yeah, correct. I mean, you get around the forced succession, you avoid the possible estate duty taxes and deemed capital gains taxes in South Africa, and you still get the benefit of the uh, permanent residency. So it's a kind of a win-win-win situation. What I'm keen to hear in how this conversation is going forward is how does one then deal with this in the world, Renee? Because one would imagine that there might be some estate planning considerations there. And I'm keen to hear your voice as well, maybe touching on how it plays out when you have one world versus multiple worlds. Thanks, Nausea. I think the most important thing to distinguish is in South Africa, we've got the freedom of testation, which means you can dictate to whom you want to bequeath your assets. Whereas in Mauritius, like Gordon just said, there's a principle called forced airship where the rules of succession will determine where the assets will go, i.e. you don't have a choice in the matter. And interesting enough, in South Africa, we always recommend that clients obtain advice to get a will drafted in the jurisdiction if they're going to buy movable property specifically. So... If you have assets located everywhere in the world, we also don't want to complicate matters by having 40 wills for every asset that you may or may not have in the UK, the US, Australia, Japan, Hong Kong. So we often tell clients from our perspective, our house views, that you should have a will in the country where you buy immovable property just to make sure from a transfer of wealth and transfer to the next generation that the laws of that country will be applicable to that property. For the rest, there will be a worldwide world that deals with all the assets situated everywhere else. Like Gordon just said, 
if you do not buy the property in the trust structure, you buy it in your own name, you do have that one unreserved portion that you can deal with in a will. And we would strongly recommend that you get a will drafted in the Mauritius to deal with that portion. Otherwise, in South Africa, if you've got a worldwide will in South Africa, there's a process that we call probate um, that you'll have to go through Mauritius just to make sure that they can actually deal with that asset um, in your South African will. But again, they don't accept joint wills or mutual wills. So it, it can become quite complicated. And therefore, before you buy the property, you have to also speak to a lawyer that can assist you and help you just to see whether you need one will, whether you need two wills, what's the benefits of having both. And Gordon, then how much more complicated is drafting a Mauritian will compared to a South African one? Uh, Nausi, before I get into that, also maybe just to add to what Renee has said is to the extent that if you're trying to deal with your Mauritian property through a South African will, now typically what we would find in a South African will is we'd say there, you know, on my death, I bequeath the residue of my estate. And remember that that residue is also now going to include that unreserved portion of the property here in Mauritius. So we tend to leave it to our surviving spouse, but then there's always that little clause below that says, should my spouse predecease me, then I bequeath the residue of my state to my children. And then there's generally a further clause that says, however, should my children be under the age of, and obviously in SA and Mauritius, that minimum age is 18. But then what we will normally see is that, you know, should my spouse predecease me, I bequeath the residue of my state to my children. However, should my children be under the age of, and fill in the missing blank, it could be 18, it could be 25, then it is to be held in trust until the child has achieved that age. Now we're sitting in a position where the unreserved portion of that property is now owned by a South African testamentary trust. And in terms of the Reserve Bank regulations, and yes, the Reserve Bank is loosening up its regulations, but my understanding is that still at this moment, a South African trust is not allowed to directly own a foreign asset. You're going to sit in this position where you have a, let's call it 34% or 25% or 50% of an asset that is held by a South African testamentary trust which the Reserve Bank don't allow. So, you know, it's, it's really important, and I couldn't agree with Renee more, that you've got to look at each particular country, uh, what their requirements are, and then filter that back into SA to see what the South African requirements are. But to answer your question, Nausi, yeah, you know, preparing a Mauritian will is a lot more complicated than drafting a South African will. To start off with, Mauritian law does not recognize oral, joint, or mutual wills. Now, we don't have oral wills in SA, but joint and mutual wills are quite common. And then furthermore, unlike in South Africa, where the surviving spouse or a child can be nominated as the executor, no heir can be appointed as an executor in the will. So it's definitely advisable for a foreigner to draw up a will in Mauritius for the available portion uh, to avoid cumbersome legalization, registration, and cross-border enforcement formalities that are associated with a foreign will. Yes. We're trying to do everything to make sure that the, that the deceased administration process 
can be as smooth as it possibly can be. And I think, Gordon, we spoke about this before. Clients often get confused or they think the laws in one country is the same as the laws in another country. We often have clients buying property in Portugal where you can actually elect your country of domicile to get out of the, the rules of forced airship completely. Where in Mauritius, you can't do the same. So I think it's so important to know that the rules are different in every jurisdiction and you can't assume that one thing that works in one jurisdiction will work in another. And of course, this is exactly what these conversations about surfacing those very nuanced insights, Renee. I want to add an additional complexity to the conversation around wills right now. And that is the reality is that many people might have loan accounts with Mauritian companies and trusts. So, Renee, how would one go about dealing with that in a world? When clients set up structures, they always just remind ourselves and our clients that we have to deal with that specific loan in your South African worldwide world because it's still an asset in your state. So I think it's something that we remind clients about that when you make this loan, to the, to the structure that you have to deal with that loan in your will. And we normally either bequeath it to the spouse or we just bequeath it back to the trust, just from a practical a flow perspective. So, yeah, it's definitely something that clients must remember, even though the assets are transferred or loaned into an offshore trust and the growth then sits outside of your state and it's under the administration of the trustees, that loan is still big and it's, there's still a value in your state. And we, we, we will assist clients just to deal with that specific loan in their world. Gordon, I, I do want to come into the business side of this conversation. We know that Mauritius is a popular destination for South Africans who are wanting to establish estate planning and business structures. Can you talk to us a little bit about why Mauritius is a good location to do business and maybe also touch on the different entities that Mauritius has and how they can be used by South Africans in those business endeavours? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, I must start off by saying that Mauritius is a fantastic jurisdiction for entities holding either active or passive or both investments. So for those wishing to simply establish an offshore structure for estate planning purposes, Mauritius is a great jurisdiction to consider as it has all the appropriate entities. The tax regime in Mauritius for trusts is very favorable as there's no income or capital gains tax, but that does not mean that there is no tax connection back to South Africa. And perhaps I can leave that in Renee's hands to answer when I'm finished. So it's for this reason that it's vital that the trust be administered by trustees who properly understand the South African Income Tax Act to avoid any unpleasant consequences in the future when distributions are made. You know, Mauritius can offer the offshore company that uh, also has no income, dividend or capital gains tax in Mauritius, except for income generated in Mauritius. But that's very, very rare. This company is perfect for acting as a holding company or for holding assets that might be subject to CITES taxes. And then for those wishing to establish companies for trading purposes, Mauritius offers the Global Business License Company, or commonly known as the GBL, and the Domestic Company. Uh, and as both of these companies are Mauritian tax residents, they qualify for all of the benefits in the double taxation agreements that Mauritius may have signed with the respective countries, South Africa being one. 
The corporate tax rate in Mauritius is 15%, but some revenues do qualify for an 80% exemption, thereby reducing the rate down to 3%. And sometimes, depending on the nature of the business, the rate is actually fixed at 3%. So if you have a client or if you have a company that is buying widgets or a product in one country, let's say China, for example, and it's exporting that particular product to another country, let's call it somewhere in Europe, that product does not arrive in Mauritius. So it doesn't touch the Mauritian shores. Then that's known as a global trading company and its tax rate is fixed at 3%. So Renee, I'm sure you want to add a little bit to what Gordon has said, but as you do, can you also touch on some of the important South African tax consequences that one has to keep in mind for setting up an offshore trust. Now, sure, Nozin. Again, it's really important that clients obtain advice on the different options to fund a trust, as the consequences will be depending on the funding. So I think just in simple terms, clients often think that we can just transfer assets to an offshore trust. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. You can either make a loan or donate assets to the trustees. And both of these options will have their own tax implications. Firstly, from a loan perspective, debt cannot be interest-free. And if the loan is interest-free, then clients need to be mindful of certain provisions in the Income Tax Act, like 7C and transfer pricing, and what the impact will be of that loan. We always recommend that interest is charged at an arm's length basis or market-related rate. And from a donation perspective, we want clients to be aware of the impact of the attribution rules if they decide to make a donation to the trust rather than a loan. So even though it sounds quite simple to fund a trust, there are quite severe tax implications on both options. And you need to make sure that you understand both before you fund your offshore vehicle. And again, it's imperative that you obtain good advice to determine what option is best for you. Then, like Gordon said, you know, just because there's no tax in the structure in Mauritius, it doesn't mean that there's no taxes to be paid in South Africa. So most of the times our clients will draw down if they've made a loan to the trust and the drawing down of the loan won't have any tax implications in South Africa. And after you've used up the loan, the nature of the distribution will determine what the tax implications will be in South Africa. And one of the great positives of working with Gordon and Mauritius is the fact that they do pot accounting, where every time a distribution is made back to South Africa, clients will understand what the nature of the distribution will be to understand what the tax implications in South Africa will be, whether it's 18%, whether it's 20%, whether it's 45%. So there is tax. There's definitely, there will be tax on certain distributions back in South Africa. And depending on your circumstances and when you need money, there are different ways to filter the distributions back to South Africa to make it tax efficient. Now, one of the other things, Renee, that Gordon touched on a little bit earlier was CITES taxes. And perhaps you can bring them back into the conversation and simplify them in terms of just giving us a working definition of what are CITES taxes, but most importantly, how do they come into play in this conversation? I mean, these days we also have to worry about French CITES tax, but for now I'm just going to focus on the UK and the US. So just to give the listeners a bit of a context. So it's commonly known that 
the tax levied in South Africa on the seas is that is called estate eating. We spoke about it earlier. Not so commonly known is that the tax levied in the UK on the seas estates is called inheritance tax, and the tax levied in the US on the seas estates is called estate tax. And these taxes are generally levied in the UK and the US on assets that are classified as US or UK CITES assets, even if these assets are owned by non-residents. So when our clients look to make investments in the US and the UK specifically, you have to think about CITES tax because it's a tax that will be triggered on your passing and the rates are quite high. I mean, in the in the UK, it's 40% over 325,000 pounds. You do have rollover relief between spouses like in South Africa with a state duty. And in the US, it's basically in short 40% over $60,000. But effectively, th- those are the rates. The 40% will kick in over $1 million. That's a big thing in the US. There's absolutely no rollover to the spouse, which means the death taxes is triggered on the first dining. So it's about the time value of money and um, how you can plan, you know, accordingly. Obviously, when you make investments, you shouldn't just think about the tax, but the tax is a big factor to consider um, when you make an investment. So what we often recommend clients do is they investigate whether offshore company trust structure could be a possible mechanism to navigate around and block these taxes. Generally, you can use an offshore trust structure. It acts as a blocker for CITES from a US perspective, which is great, given the fact that there's no rollover relief and the minimums are fairly low. And then from a UK perspective, there's something, they call it the 10-year anniversary charge for UK CITES assets. So if you have direct equity, as an example, invested in the UK via your trust structure, then every 10 years, the 10-year charge is payable at a maximum rate of 6% on the value of the UK CITES property at the date of the 10-year anniversary, which exceeds the £325,000 that I just spoke about. There is an apportionment of the charge according to how many quarters of the property has been in a UK CITES assets since the, the last 10-year charge. So what we often see, is, and we often have this discussion with Gordons, you can have a, a company underneath the trust and then the UK CITES assets can then be housed and invested in the company and then you won't trigger the 10-year anniversary charge. So I think CITES tax is a big consideration for our clients, especially given the fact that the UK and the US are great jurisdictions from an investment perspective. And again, there's a lot of planning that can be done to circumvent or get around these taxes or minimize them. So, I mean, Renee has covered the CITES beautifully. And there's one more that I'd like to add with regards to the UK. You know, she's talked about the 10-year anniversary charge. And where CITES also plays a role is that in the UK, they have a thing that's called gift with residue of benefit. So if an individual sets up a trust and is a beneficiary of that trust, then under certain conditions, not not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, if that person passes away, then the value of the UK CITES assets are deemed to form part of his estate for UK inheritance tax. So therefore, that's one of the principal reasons why clients who are looking at acquiring UK CITES assets is to put those assets in an underlying company, because you will 
remove the 10-year anniversary charge and you will remove the gift with residue of benefit on death. Yeah, Gordon, just to add to that, because this is quite an important factor, it's not for fixed property. So if you're going to buy immovable property, a house or flat in the UK, there's definitely an offshore structure might not be the best vehicle. And we would really strongly recommend that clients just obtain their own advice in the UK when they purchase a property, because there are different rules and different consequences for each option. As an example, the trust and the company, you know, the UK will apply look-through principle and CITES tax will be applicable. So it's definitely not something that you should buy without obtaining independent formal advice on the best way to do so. And Lucy, just to wrap up on this, you know, I've explained that offshore structures are a great planning mechanism to navigate around CITES taxes. The beauty about an offshore trust is that it can be established in terms of one jurisdiction, the laws of Channel Islands as an example, and it can be managed out of another jurisdiction like Mauritius. And we often find that clients establish the trust in terms of the laws of Channel Islands, and then the trust is managed from Mauritius just from a cost perspective to manage cost a bit better. So I think that's the beauty of offshore vehicles. They're fairly flexible. It can be established in one country, managed out of another one, and the bank account can be in a third jurisdiction. So I think trusts and structures is something that clients should definitely utilize when they prepare their global state plan. I think one of the things to certainly say is that uh, to invite our listeners to also listen in on the UK and the US podcast where we go into a little bit more detail as well around CITES, but certainly a very important consideration. I do want to maybe move the conversation to, again, the ease and the cost of doing business in Mauritius. I mean, you've talked about the type of companies that are available and how they're taxed, but maybe a little bit of commentary around the cost of doing business. And perhaps, you know, some of the key questions I know that our listeners might have would be questions around labor laws, around regulation, the availability of skilled support companies like lawyers, accountants, insurance banks and the like, what does the lay of the, the business landscape look like? We have no exchange controls. There's no dividend withholding tax. So when a company declares a dividend to the shareholder, that's it. There, there's no dividend withholding tax. There's no capital gains tax. There's no estate duty tax. It offers a convenient time location. We're four hours away from SA. We're four hours away from Kenya, six hours away from Dubai, We're six hours away from India, six and a half from Singapore, six and a half to Perth. Geographically, it's really well located. And then we have economic and political stability. When employing uh, staff in Mauritius, though, it is important to, to take into consideration the labor laws and the Workers' Rights Act, as Mauritius does have labor laws that do tend to favor the employee, not dissimilar to what you would find in South Africa. We're a highly regulated jurisdiction, and the Mauritius Financial Services Commission follows the Jersey Financial Services Commission. Our regulator holds both on-site and off-site inspections, which is why management companies are obliged to collate a lot of client due diligence documentation, which it causes a huge amount of frustration with our South African clients. And, you know, I must emphasize, we're not doing it just to be difficult. It is done because that's what the law requires. And in addition to that, we do get audited. And if we are found not to have up-to-date 
client due diligence information, or if we haven't done a proper source of wealth, source of funds, then we're either liable for administrative penalties. And I heard last week at, at a particular function that a company recently got hit with a $700,000 fine just because they did not have a compliance officer and a money laundering reporting officer because they thought that the management company would have been sufficient. So we need to be very careful on that, but it is regulated and that should give people peace of mind. And then finally, we have an abundance of professional service providers at relatively low costs. You know, when compared to what I'm seeing in SA or alternatively in the UK, the fees that the accounting firms and the lawyers, et cetera, are charging are very, very reasonable. And, you know, these, these do include very well-known legal and accountancy firms, as well as insurance companies and banks. Mm. Sure, this has been a, a rich conversation with so much nuance and just so many insights from the both of you. As we begin to wrap it up now, I'd love for you both just to share with us the top takeaways that you have for our clients, considerations, insights that you'd really like to land for our listeners to walk away with at the end of this conversation. And maybe, Renee, let me kick off with you first. Thanks, Nozia. I think information is so important. I think it's great that we're speaking about these things because the more you know, the more you can plan. And I think at Investic, we are well-placed to help our clients navigate through all of these complexities with our clients. You know, and as each client and each family looks different to another with different circumstances and complexities associated to their planning and different beneficiaries living all around the world. I think it's important for people to understand that there's no one size fits all. And we really recommend that clients obtain their own independence advice that's based on their personal circumstances and that makes sense for them as a family unit. Fantastic. Gordon, what are you leaving us with? So I think I'm going to close off by probably stating to me what is the most important is that the geographic location of Mauritius makes it a convenient place to do business in Africa, Middle East, India, and Southeast Asia. Cost of doing business is low when compared to other jurisdictions, and the country offers all the necessary infrastructure needed to operate a business. We have high-speed internet, good banking systems, and highly skilled staff and service providers. And then probably finally, just to say that for estate planning purposes, Mauritius offers all the necessary entities at an affordable cost. Thank you to you both. It's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. You've done an excellent job of explaining what South Africans need to know when moving to or intending to invest in Mauritius. Now, to our listeners, remember that you can find out about the ins and outs of living and investing in the UK, the US and Australia by simply clicking on the links on this page. Now, one of the things that Renee did mention is that no two families are the same. And so we do encourage you to get in touch with your private banker or contact your wealth manager so that you can really get advice that is specific to your unique circumstances and your family's circumstances. We also encourage you to please get independent tax advice and that is just to make sure that you are really working off your unique circumstances. For me and the team, it's a massive thank you to Renee and Gordon and to you for tuning in. It's goodbye.
no two families are the same. And so we encourage you strongly to get in touch with your private banker or your wealth manager to take forward the conversations that have come out of this podcast. In addition to that, it's very important to get independent tax advice that is specific to your and your family's circumstances. Invested Wealth and Investment is a member of the JSC Equity, Equity Derivatives, Currency Derivatives, Bond Derivatives, and Interest Rate Derivatives Markets, a registered credit provider and authorized financial services provider. The opinions featured in this podcast are not to be considered as the opinions of Invested Wealth and Investment and do not constitute financial or other advice.